and welcome to the Law Down Under podcast with Barrister Chris Patterson, where we'll give you insights into the law in New Zealand and Australia, its application and the law's future. Each episode features a new guest who will inspire your interest in the law and give you a greater understanding of the legal issues that help shape our justice system here down under. We thank you for tuning in and enjoy the podcast. I'm super excited today. I have with me in the studio Mark Kelly. Mark is a commercial mediator based in Auckland. He is the current president of the Arbitrators and Mediators Institute of New Zealand. He won the Mediator of the Year Award at the 2019 New Zealand Law Awards. He graduated with a law degree with honours and a BA from Auckland University back in 1993, and he was admitted to the New Zealand Bar that year. He's a keen, long-distance runner, these days mainly off-road. In 2021, he placed second at his age group in the Rootburn Classic. He's also a keen but very much self-professed, deeply average golfer. Hey, good morning, Mark. Thank you for coming along. How are you? Hey, Chris. Thank you so much for having me, and I'm great on this beautiful Auckland autumn day. It's lovely to be here. It is a stunner. It's a little bit crisp out there today, but it's yes. an absolute stunner. But we are stuck in a dark studio with one light. <laughs> <laughs> in amongst all this fantastic tech. I love it. All right. Well done. Well done. Hey, now we're going to talk about mediation. Um, so like the first question really is, is what is mediation? <laughs> <laughs> I'm pleased you asked. Um, mediation uh, can simply be defined as an attempt to settle a dispute through a neutral third party. Uh, and at its heart, it's as simple as that. It's uh, two or more parties in dispute who ask a uh, neutral person to come and help them resolve their dispute. Okay, well... Um why would someone do that? Why would they ask you or, or any mediator to, to help them out if they're, they're trying to negotiate a settlement? Well, it's a, it's a great question. And I think, look, the reality is that um, people in disputes of any kind um, can quite naturally get quite entrenched, quite, um, quite positional. Uh, they get to a place where uh, as amongst themselves, they can't get out of the dispute. They're in almost a sort of a spiral of conflict that they can't escape. Uh, and in that context, sort of the, the idea of introducing a trusted neutral to help them, to help them talk to each other, to help them sort of find uh, where the common ground might be, um, makes a lot of sense. A and interestingly, it's um, it's got a really long history. Um one of my favourites is that uh, apparently back in um, the time of Henry I, right back in the 12th century, uh, they even had mediation back then. It was a, a way of resolving disputes in, in the kingdom. Um, but rather than call it mediation, they called them love days, which has a sort of Barry White-esque <laughs> ring to it. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> we need a bit of soul music in the background yeah, for that yeah. one. But yeah. Um, and if you think about it, uh, you know, mediation has been utilised in all sorts of contexts since then, um, really famously by President Jimmy Carter to um, achieve the Camp David Accords between um, Egypt and Israel. Um, and, uh, you know, and you can think about the sort of Norwegians acting as mediators in the Sri Lanka conflict. So in an international political context, mediation is common. Uh, also really common um, domestically here in New Zealand, really in the legal scene, uh, particularly took off in industrial relations in the 70s and has sort of flowered into all aspects of sort of legal disputes since then. Yeah, look, I think you make a good point. I mean, New Zealand was uh, very much at the forefront and a leader of, uh, you mentioned industrial relations. Uh, New Zealand's got a long history of uh, dating back to the, the original Arbitration and Conciliation mm. Act, which, which which survived, you know, nearly 80-odd 80, 80 years of a model where uh, the unions uh, and employers would uh, first attempt to resolve matters between them and, if necessary, the court would appoint a you know, conciliation process. Yeah. And that, that then followed itself through well, into, uh, I, I guess it was uh, um, uh, 19, all the way through to about 1987, with the, the Labor Relations Act, still had that conciliation process to it. The Employment Contracts Act created a mediation service. Um, yep. So, you know, New Zealand's had a very strong history of, of mediation. Hey, now, look, let's talk about your history. 
because you started off life um, as a lawyer, and yes. and in fact, you still do a little bit of law. Are you still doing a bit? Of I'm, these days, I'm exclusively a mediator. Exclusively a mediator. Okay. Well, <laughs> all my sins. All right. Well, look, what what was the pathway from you know 1993 to the point where I guess you said to yourself, "Hey, I found this is my calling. I'm going to make this my full time gig." Um. I spent sort of the first 10 years of my career working at big firms in New Zealand and in Ireland, um, and then in 2005 went to the bar. Um, and so and then uh, so 10 years in firms and then 10 years at the bar, and I suppose in those 20 years um, right through till about 2013, 2014, um, I was practising, as you say, exclusively as a lawyer and as a litigator. So I was working in commercial and civil disputes. And I really enjoyed that work. I enjoyed the intellectual challenge of it. I enjoyed sort of, you know, um, meeting people and and sort of the, um, uh, you know, the dynamics and working in the justice system and, and all of those sorts of things that really appeal to, um, to many of us as lawyers. Um, but I also struggled a bit um, with aspects, I suppose, of, um, of the role in terms of how it sort of worked for me. And I found myself often sort of fighting my way to Pyrrhic victories and tactical retreats and honourable draws and just sort of wondering, gosh, am I sort of, am I helping here? Um, and in the, um, in that sort of, um, uh, in over that 20 years, I'd been counsel and many mediations, as I know you have, Chris, um, and I'd really enjoyed that process. I'd enjoyed the immediacy of it. I enjoyed the opportunity to really get a result and get things sorted for the client. So I'd always had an interest in mediation. And then I went off and did some courses, um, did a course here in New Zealand, and then I did a course up at Harvard. And um, and I, it was a bit of a sort of, um, you know, Blues Brothers sort of doing flick flacks through the Triple Rock Church for me moment. I was just, oh, wow, this is great. And, um, and sort of um, from that moment on, I was um, a, a zealous convert um, and so decided to, um, to become a mediator and sort of since then um, have been fortunate enough to mediate more and more and more until, as I say, it's now my full-time gig. Okay, so uh, tell me about the these two courses. So the first one you did was one here in New Zealand. Yes. Like when was it? Tell us about it. That was back in 2014, Resolution Institute. Um, leader, as it was then known, um, provided a five-day intensive course. Um, and um, it was Anna Quinn and Carol Powell were the um, coaches on that course. And it was a sort of very hands-on um, uh interactive learning how to mediate course and I just loved it. Then I went up to Harvard, um, was taught when, when was that? When uh, same got, year, 2014. Same year? Oh, right. yeah. God, you packed in two, two courses yeah, in one as year. I say, <laughs> I was suddenly sort of, wow, you know, I'd had that um, that sort of um, lightning strike moment. Um, and so I went up to Harvard and was taught up there um, by Professor Bob Manukin and um, who's a um, professor at the university there and a very famous mediator, Gary Friedman who's a California mediator, one of the godfathers of um, mediation in the US. And again, that was a five-day um, intensive course, very practical, very hands-on. Um, loved it. Met some really amazing people doing all sorts of super cool things all over the world. And um, and again, it really sort of fueled the passion in me. Yeah, look, um, I, I guess one of the – this is just one of my observations – is uh, – New Zealand has traditionally lacked, um, just it, uh, before getting into the issue of quality, just simply a quantity of commercial mediators um, uh, to the point where uh, if parties wanted mediation, there was only a few people that you could literally go to that could hand on heart say that they had training and experience. Uh, and often they would be booked three or four months out, mm. which um, doesn't really necessarily work when you're trying to get a prompt resolution to a, a very challenging problem. I mean, did you see a gap in, kind of calling it a market, but <laughs> did you see that there was a gap in the market? Um, it, it's difficult, and I, I, to, I, I totally um, understand the, the, the problem that you're talking about there. And it's slightly strange because there are only a, there's a very small handful of pe people who are sort of full-time professional um, commercial and civil mediators. And in that sense, there's a small pool. There are, um, there are, there's then, and that, that's probably only about half a dozen people at the moment. 
there are then a sort of, there's then a sort of set of people who um, mediate some of the time. Some of the retired judges mediate some of the time. There are some arbitrators who sometimes mediate. Um, and then, and there might be a, a sort of dozen of those folk who are active. And then beyond that, there are a whole lot of people who sort of have mediation on their shingle, but for whom it's perhaps only an occasional gig. And so in a sense, it's not necessarily, I don't think, a supply issue in terms of people who are keen to do the work, but there's probably a supply issue in terms of um, those full-time um, commercial mediators who people want to to use. And, and, and as a chicken and egg aspect to that, I think, because, you know, no one wants to go to someone for their first mediation. You know, you want the experienced hand, you want a bit of grey hair at the end of the table, and you want someone who who you know, either through your own experience or from hearing from others, knows what they're doing and, and can help you. Yeah. Okay. And now, look, you mentioned, you know, a few retired judges, and, and there's, there's always exceptions, and we're not going to mention any names, but, you know, some of the retired judges who have turned their hand to mediation have been okay at it, um, but it, it's not naturally uh, a skill set um, of going from being a litigator and, and determining arguments that are put before you on on sort of black application of the law. That doesn't ne- necessarily equate into the skill sets that a, a mediator may need to have, and, and one of them, of course, um, is, is the ability to understand interests as opposed to rights. Yes. Yeah. So, look, um, uh, in my experience, I'm just going back to the supply issue, I mean, there have been times, fortunately not in recent years, where I've been involved in mediations where the parties have had to bring mediators in from Australia right? simply because the calibre of the mediator required, because not all mediators come in the same shape and form, um, or should I say have the same skill set or capability, um, just simply required bringing someone, flying someone in from overseas because the matter just needed it. Um, uh, have you have you got any aspirations for, for going sort of trans-Tasman and beyond our fair shores? <laughs> yeah, look, I, I've, um, I, I already do and have mediated international disputes and happily so. Um, and funnily enough, and perhaps we'll talk a bit more about this later, um, more easily so now in, in times of... Um, Zoom and um, where internet media, you know, internet-based mediation is more common. Um, so um, yes, for me, and and I enjoy the international dynamic. Um, but I, I think perhaps what what your observations really speak to, and it's a really important point, is that um, people need to be comfortable with the mediator. You know, you need to have confidence in your mediator because it's a huge trust that you. Um, that you are putting in this person to help you through a really difficult day, through a really difficult process um, at a really difficult point. So, you know, I think that that's the number one um, sort of uh, determinant of um, who you might pick as a mediator. It's got to be someone you've got confidence in. Well, can 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 we talk about that? Can we talk about how do you build confidence with a participant when, I mean, and I'm putting aside experience counsel. I mean, you mm. may have had, because I mean, you and I have had several mediations together. Um, so, you know, we've already got that relationship. But often the parties, you, 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 you're likely never to have met them before. And you're sitting in a room, you've got the day set aside. How do you, how do you start building that, that confidence and trust with them? Um, yeah, look, another great question. And it's very... It's sort of you know there is some good there's some good research around um, what what sort of works in mediation and lots of people sort of take different angles on it and talk about various aspects of the mediator's toolkit and there are all sorts of different interventions and different things that we can do uh, to help the day along. But I think, um, and I'm not the only one who thinks this, that all of that um, is is sort of but a toolbox, but that the the critical thing is your ability to build good relationships. Um, and so, and that's with the parties as, as much, if not more so than with the lawyers involved. Um, and um, that isn't necessarily something that is susceptible to easy definition or um, is a function of any particular thing that what, you know, a person might do. Um, but I think it's really important um, to, um, to look, 
from the very start to sort of build that relationship with the participants. So as you know, what I typically do is sort of start off meeting each um, group separately and privately. And in that context, I look to talk um, to the um, to the participants, to the clients, make sure that they're comfortable, um, talk to them a bit about the process. I like to talk to people a little bit about other stuff as well. You know, hopefully we can have a little bit of banter about, you know, whether it's the traffic or the weather or the day or whatever, um, just something that I think um, personalises the relationship and sort of gets people in a more comfy space with me. Um, and so, um, so there's that. I think that you also build trust and confidence by demonstrating that you know what you're doing and you've got a plan for the day and you've got a plan for how we're going to roll and that you're um, you're going to guide folks. So I think sort of talking them through what you're going to do and then doing what you say you're going to do uh, is important in that regard as well. Yeah, absolutely. Look, one issue that, that does pop up for me with clients every now and again in mediation is I'll say, you know, is, is the mediator uh, on – is he or she? Are they are they on the other side? Are they <laughs> they got a relationship with the other party or parties? So that whole um, being impartial. Um, what I will always point out is to say, well, absolutely, they're a neutral. Okay, um, yeah, they will know some of the the counsel involved in a mediation, and um, they may have known them for a long time, but. You know, their role is, is very much neutral and, and that's their focus. Um, uh, have you come across that as an issue before? Um, I, look, I think impartiality is, um, is the absolute sort of um, foundation to what we do, to what I do. Um, and I think there are, you know, it's, it's, um, it's central of itself, but I think there are also some, some push and pull dynamics to impartiality. And by that, in the push sense, I mean that that's what people are paying you for. You know, that's what they're hiring for, hiring you for, to be um, an impartial, neutral um, person. Well, and, some would say they're paying you to get a settlement. <laughs> I don't really care how you do it. <laughs> well, we can, yeah, that, that, that's another topic. Yeah. But, um, uh, and, and they're bringing you um, uh, into their process um, to fulfill that role. And so in that sense, that's what you sign up for. Uh, and, and in the um, in the pull sense, then, look, you know, also we are all as mediators subject to various ethical obligations. You know, I, I'm a member, obviously, and current president of Ammons, and Ammons has various ethical statements. There are other um, ethical regimes that um, cover mediators in other contexts. And in all of those um, ethical statements, impartiality is is absolutely central to what we do. So, so you know, we agree to do that. We're told to do that, and it's also, I think, our, our major selling point is our impartiality. Um, so that's the sort of that's the structure around impartiality. But but you're absolutely right. New Zealand's a small world. You know, I know you, and I might not know the other lawyer. You know, that I work with on a particular day, um, and. Um, you know, and I think in that um, uh, sense, you've obviously got to be careful. You've got to be aware um, of, you know, in your own head of, well, I, I know him, but I might not know her sort of, you know, and making sure that you as mediator are always maintaining your neutrality. Uh, and you also, um, I think, help give uh, the parties and council confidence in your neutrality by the way in which you run the process. So making sure that people get even airtime. Um, intervening appropriately if someone's being difficult, whether they're the person you know or not, and generally um, running the process in a fair and even-handed way. Yeah, look, absolutely. You mentioned uh, just in terms of ethical you know, obligations um, and uh, you know, with the Arbitrators and Mediators Institute, so they have a, an eth ethical code. I uh, got on the internet and had a look at it. <laughs> <laughs> Compared it to the mediation service. Um, probably the mediation service could probably do with a revision, if that's a polite way of putting it. But I also had a good look at the, the Law Council of Australia's ethical guidelines yes. for mediators. And as I kind of went through that one, I went, God, actually they put a, a lot of time and effort. It's, yes. it's a great document. So, I mean, listeners out there, if you want to get on the internet and Google Law Council of Australia Ethical Guidelines for Mediators, there's, um, there's a wealth of, of commentary 
on some of the, the main ethical themes, but your point's well made. There is a, There are common threads on the yeah. ethical obligations that, that most organisations will, will promote. Yep. But look, you know, just dealing with our AMs, which is the Arbitrage Mediators Institute in New Zealand, one of the, the first ethical statements that they make is that prior to accepting an appointment, a member should have undertaken training and have appropriate experience in the relevant dispute resolution process. And I, and I guess this is essential. Um, yeah. Without the, the training, um, you could get yourself out of, out of depth. And I mean, I've been in mediations where I felt the mediator has got themselves out of depth and um, that hasn't helped. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And look, yeah, happily, um, there are a whole variety of training opportunities for mediators, both in New Zealand and overseas. I've touched on a couple of them. Um, Ammons has a, also has a five-day intensive, which is amazing, um, called um, AMPSI, uh, the Ammons Mediation Skills Intensive. Um, and then there are, um, there are also various mediation and ADR courses taught at the universities. So there are various opportunities in New Zealand to, to upskill, to sort of um, to get trained in mediation. Yeah, now just from the, you know, the, the, the training aspect of it, uh, one thing that I've noticed with MB Sofa listeners, this is the Ministry of Innovation, Business and Employment. It's um, kind of the government department that's sucked up a whole lot of things. Uh, but in short, they have a mediation service for employment mediations. And uh, employment, an area of law in New Zealand where most mediations take place is in the employment context. Um, there are literally thousands of mm. um, uh, mediations that take place really each year. Really high volume. So yeah. it's a massive high volume. You know, they, they, they'll, they'll, have, they'll they allocate three hours. They'll, they'll have a mediator do two a day, five days a week. Some of the mediators burn out. Um, and, and some of the mediators that have gone through that service, I mean, some of them that are still there, are very, very good. Um, one thing going back to the training, though, uh, is that occasionally you'll have a mediator say, "Hey, look, you know, we've got someone who we want to have sitting in the room uh-huh. as an observer. There are there a new mediator, or there a mediator wanting to observe." And uh, from my perspective, that's a great training process to be able to. You know, it's all very well reading the books and hearing the lectures, but it's really good to be able to observe a good, talented mediator actually in action. Bearing in mind that counsel and their clients only tend to see one aspect of a mediator's performance, um, or should I say two aspects, you know, there's the, the, the group caucusing aspect, and then there's the private breakout aspect, but they don't get to see what's going on in the other room and, and the skill set that's being applied there, whereas when you're shadowing a mediator, you get to see the whole shooting match, and, and that, that can be quite informative and educative. I mean, have you gone through that process as part of your training? No, actually, I, I never had um, the opportunity to be an observer, um, but I 100% agree with you. And um, and I think that giving uh, young mediators the opportunity or, or starting out mediators, there aren't so many really young mediators <laughs> per se, um, <laughs> yeah. but um, I think at 52, I'm one of the youngest um, commercial mediators in New Zealand. Um, but giving starting out mediators observations is um, 100% agree and valuable experience. And at Ammons, over the last two years, we've developed a scholarships program. Uh, we have a consensual scholar and a determinative scholar. And we find sort of younger superstars in dispute resolution. Um, and and we, we, we look to find them through a diversity lens. So if you're a middle-aged white guy, you need not apply, and rightly so, because there are enough of us. Um, but beyond that, we look with a diversity lens to find superstars. Uh, and our consensual scholars, um, part of their scholarship is to um, uh, uh, includes six observation days watching mediators do their stuff. So they'll, they'll I did three last year and, and we'll do some more um, this year. Having, um, as I say, aspiring mediators sit in with me, totally silent, just sort of watching um, and shadowing me. And, um, and certainly the feedback I've had in terms of those who've observed me and the observations they've done of other mediators is that it's been an invaluable experience. Um, and you're absolutely right about, you know, Parties and council don't necessarily see all that a mediator does. And in fact, ironically, the smoother it goes, 
you know, the less you might see a mediator do, which actually means mediators doing a great job. It's that. Is it swans or ducks who paddle a lot under the water but are serene above it? Hopefully yes, it's yeah, sort of yeah, that absolutely. dynamic. No, completely. Yeah that, yeah, that cruise along the water surface. Hey, look, let's move into another ethical, you know, uh, I guess, guideline for mediators, and that is this uh, upholding integrity and fairness uh, in the process. You know, c- can you give us some 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 meaning to that? What what does that mean to you? Well, I, I think um, the mediation is um, it's a really challenging day for the participants. It's a challenging da- challenging day for counsel. Um, and, um, you know, this is the day on which hopefully they will resolve their dispute, but it's also the day on which, you know, they will hear from the other side how the other side sees things, and, and often they are hard conversations. Um, and and at, towards the end of the day, there are some hard decisions to be made. So um, to me, um, maintaining integrity and fairness are about um, making what is a difficult process um, manageable and fair for the participants. So that means, um, as I sort of mentioned earlier, making sure that everyone gets a fair shake, that everyone gets to have their say, um, making sure that if um, there are difficult personalities in the room, that doesn't derail or unduly um, sort of damage uh, the process. Um, helping people um, to hear what's been said, you know, because often, you know, people will come to the process and very much primed to have their say, but not necessarily primed to have a listen as well. So helping them to hear. Um, and there are various ways in which we can help with that, be it through breaks, be it through reframing um, and, and the like. So helping people to, to hear what's being said as well as get their say. Um, also helping them to um, take a step back and realistically assess where they are and what will happen if they don't settle. Um, and and sort of make good decisions. And, and some of that might be about um, the way that conversations are structured. Some of it might be about um, taking reasonable breaks. Some of it might be about getting, you know, having some private time with their lawyers to get some more advice on points. So for me, sort of integrity and fairness of the process are about making it um, as helpful as possible and as fair as possible for the parties with a view to helping them um, making good decisions about settlement. Okay. And do you think there's probably um, two sides to the to the coin, if that's a way of phrasing it, in terms of you know, the objective of mediation is often looked at in a very simplistic form of saying just reaching a settlement, Okay. But I mean, ultimately, for the mediator and and even myself as counsel, um, possibly, but more to a a greater, lesser degree, is once the deal's done, then we all just go on to the next, solving the the next dispute or resolving the next dispute. But these people have to live with that outcome. And in my experience, parties tend to be able to live with that outcome better in a less difficult way if they feel like they've had a fair shot at mm. the process and it's been a fair process and that's what it's resulted at, as opposed to one where they go, uh, the whole thing's been unfair and I've been forced to uh, enter into a resolution that I just don't don't really agree with. Um, I mean, has that been your experience? Yeah, look, I... I, I, um, uh, I, I think um, people need to have their say. Um, and that's really important. And it's interesting, actually, with some lawyers um, who are often experienced hands, they want to rush too quickly to the deal. Um, and sometimes there are some sort of more hard-headed commercial parties who think that that's a good idea too. Let's let's forget about all this, you know, conversation about um, our differences. Let's get straight to the deal. Or how we felt or <laughs> the emotion of it all and how you that's hurt right. me. I don't need you to know? do that, Mark. Don't need to worry about don't that. Worry about you you cancelled the contract. It really hurt me. You know? <laughs> don't need to talk about that. Just um, straight to the deal. And what yeah. happens um, – and, and so I, I – um, uh, Try and encourage folk not to do that because what actually happens when you start when you if you do that is you start going um, you start talking about the deal and all of a sudden people go well hang on a second they'd agree to my number if only they understood how terrible such and such was and how wrong they were in such and such a context so what they really are saying is I need to have my say you know and then I can tell them um, you know all of these issues 
So you're absolutely right. It's really important for people to have their say and to feel that they've had their say. And and I think there's a really interesting contextual dynamic to that in terms of our justice system, because if you think about it in, in a civil dispute, once someone, um, once two parties begin a dispute, so one goes to their lawyer and says, hey, I think, you know, so, so, someone was negligent and um, towards me or, or whatever. Or someone I've breached, been wronged. Yes, yeah. I've been wronged. Someone's breached your contract with me. They go see their lawyer. Their lawyer goes, right, you've got a cracky case. Cool. I'm going to write them a letter and, you know, and tell them how wrong they are and that they need to pay some money. And the client goes, great. And then that letter arrives and the, and the intended defendant goes off to their lawyer and says, I never did anything wrong. And their lawyer goes, great, okay, I'm going to write them a letter telling them to go away. And then off you go. You're into a, a, a then comes a statement of claim is filed in court and a statement of defence is filed in court. I'll just jump in there, okay. You are right, um, but of course there is always the risk that before the statement of claim there's this whole process of litigating by correspondence. That, True. That also, could go on for quite some time, achieve absolutely nothing yes. other than cost a lot of money. Absolutely. And and I guess my point with this is that through none of that do the parties talk to each other. You know, yeah. our, our system in, in terms of civil and commercial disputes tends to work in a way where that, where it's, you know, your lawyer is your hired champion and you send them off to do sort of um, to do sort of a paper battle for you. And and that might go on for two years that you never talk to the person on the other side. So the, 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 the beauty, but also the stress of mediation is that folk actually, for the first and probably only time, get to talk to the other person. And even in a trial, they don't get to do that. In a trial, well, well particular, particularly the parties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. In yeah. a trial, they'll get to tell the judge their story, but they won't get to tell each other their story. So... Um, in terms of sort of um, making it a good process, I mean, I, I think of itself it's a good process and that's one of the key reasons for that is it's probably the first and only time that people get to tell each other, I think you did me wrong. I don't think I did. Here are the reasons why I think you did me wrong. Here are the reasons why I think I didn't. And um, and that's those are really important um, conversations that people almost never get in our system, at least face-to-face. -face. Yeah, and, and look... From my perspective, there's there's actually two things often that's going on through that talking process by by, by the, the person speaking, doing the talking. It, 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 it's, it's sometimes not so much about I want to persuade you that you've got it wrong and I'm right. That that's only one part of it. And that can mm. and, and of course lawyers tend to, you know, being advocates, that's ninety-nine percent of often what they're they're doing. Whereas for parties, there's actually something else that, that can often go on, which is I'm saying these words because I need to get them off my chest mm. so that I'm then able to settle. It, 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 I'm not saying it so that you'll offer me more money. I'm actually saying it so that I'm more comfortable with the money you're offering me or, 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 or a particular position. And that's because... Two parties, and of course it's more complicated when you've got multiple parties in mediation, aren't necessarily as far down the settlement pathway as each other or the road to yeah, settlement. Totally. And, and that process of talking often brings parties you know, a long way forward. It, 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 it progresses them to the point where they're ready to settle. They've had their say and now they're ready to do the deal. Have that's your experience? Oh, totally. Yeah. I think there's a, you know... It, Sometimes I think that when uh, folk discuss issues in mediation, they are persuaded by one another or they are persuaded to a degree or they realise that perhaps certain positions they had have more risk than they had previously appreciated, but only sometimes. And it's yeah. pretty rare that anyone goes, actually, now that you say that, I realise I'm banged to rights, right? That, that, <laughs> it's I've had it wrong the whole time. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for telling me. <laughs> but... but um, the the dynamic that you're describing is absolutely right. It's it, there's a real catharsis to the process for people just to look across the table and say, "You did me wrong," and it made me really miserable. And I um and yes, it cost me money, but also it's cost me sleep. And you know, and the, and perhaps a spouse will be there and say, "Yeah, it's cost us both sleep, and it's you know, it's affected our relationship with our family. You know, this the stress of this thing, and and those are factors which may not necessarily um. Uh, sort of transfer into a whole lot of legal remedies, but they're things that are really important for folk to say to one another. And we all know in our own lives, you know, even if you're having a, a 
disagreement with your spouse or otherwise, often it's just the saying of, you did this, that, that, that's it. You know, that's what you need to do. And having said that, you can, you can, and being told that you're right or wrong or whatever it is, you're much um, freer and readier to move on and perhaps be practical and see, um, think about what life really looks like if we carry on this dispute versus how nice life might be if we could resolve it. Yeah, or or even that ability, rather than focusing on the other party's got it wrong, just that opportunity to actually say, actually, you know what, I've got this part wrong, and I apologise. Yeah, you know that whole, you know, it's 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 almost like a form of restorative justice. <laughs> oh my God, yeah. where where that ability to actually communicate a genuine, heartfelt apology. Yeah. can actually be the one thing that, that actually leads to a settlement that both parties are able to walk away with and live with um, rather than continuing, you know, what what is a, a very blunt instrument and that's an unresolved dispute handed over to a third party to hand the parties a resolution as their punishment for one yeah. or both of them being unreasonable. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And, and look, that's a great point. And, um, you know, I, I, I sort of hark back to the way that our system works. And, you know, you and I as lawyers, one course that we were we never were offered was how to help clients with an apology. You know, and it's very rare for a lawyer's letter to begin with, my client um, wants to share a heartfelt apology for this. You know, that's just not how we're trained. We're trained in a, and, and, and that's not our culture typically as lawyers. We're trained in a combative adversarial dynamic. Never admit wrong. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah, right. Yeah. And um and you're absolutely right. It's really frequent common in um a um in a mediation for an apology which in a sense costs nothing and um in a, in, in a legal sense doesn't have any meaningful legal standing to make all the difference. Um now they're, they're a delicate dynamic, you know, someone saying, um, I'm really sorry that you feel that way doesn't necessarily advance you yeah. very much, right? And and sometimes, you know, there might be a perception that the apology is self-serving. So apologies are hard, hard to do well, but done well, um, they can be hugely helpful in certain contexts. Yeah, look, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think, and, you know, just looking at my career, you know, 25 years, I've only had one instance where in court, I've had to read out an apology on behalf of a client, but there was a defamation matter and, um, you know, it, it was appropriate at the time. It was the right thing to do. And, you know, you, you wonder whether uh, the use of apologies mm. earlier on um, in, in a mechanism like mediation would actually uh, resolve the, a lot of grief and time and energy and, and cost that the parties would otherwise suffer. Let's move on to some other kind of ethical guidelines that, sure. that mediators uh, uh, operate on. Um, one of them is is this issue that you know a member should only accept an appointment, uh, a mediator should only accept an appointment if they've got the ability to conduct the process efficiently uh, and in a timely manner. Um, can you give us some meaning to that? How do, how, do, how does how do you interpret that? Well, I think um, now that's in the context of the Ammons um, ethics, which apply to arbitrators as well. And timeliness is um, perhaps more of a challenge for arbitrators than it is for mediators. I mean, uh, Grant Morris out of Victoria University has done some great research about the New Zealand mediation market, um, which tells us that I think about 95% of mediations in New Zealand are sort of one day or less. Yeah. Um, and so um, if we're thinking about timeliness of process and take your point about sometimes folk get booked out and um, uh, that's great for us, but not so great for the people that are um, that want to use our services. Um, but, um, it, it, but you're absolutely right that, um, you know, people don't want it. One of the biggest problems, one of the biggest problems we have with access to justice in New Zealand is delay. Yeah. And so, you know, if you can't take an appointment in a timely way, you shouldn't take it. And if the parties, um, you know, want you to mediate in the next two or three weeks, then, and you're not available for three or four months, and yet, you know, I don't think you should press that. But I, the, the market kind of sorts that out, I think, in the mediation context. It's a little more difficult for arbitrators, particularly if an arbitrator not only may they be too busy to hear the matter sooner rather than later, but they might be too busy to um, to issue an award promptly, which is obviously important in the arbitration context as well. Yeah, now, I, look, I have come across this, although, um, uh, to be fair, it wasn't here in New Zealand, of mediators taking backing, sort of backup bookings. <laughs> um, I mean, is that, a, is that a practice that you follow? No, never. No, no, no. no. If, you've got, if you've got me for a day, um, I'm, I'm with you that day. Yeah. Um, 
next kind of ethical statement to look at is this issue of um, confidentiality and privacy um, and respecting that. Um, How does that work? Well, um, mediation is um, uh, a confidential process. Um, It's also without prejudice and covered in that sense by the Evidence Act. But um, the confidentiality is... Um, primarily driven by contract. Any agreement to mediate um, will have a confidentiality clause in it and also by statute when you're mediating in a statutory context such as um, with employment or with tight homes or in family mediations So, um, uh, or for that matter farm debt mediation. So any statutory mediation regime will usually um, provide for the process to be confidential, confidential uh, as to as I say, well, any um, agreement to mediate. So everyone agrees that this process is confidential, sort of what goes on this tour stays on this tour. There are a few legal exceptions to that, but in large part, um, it's a confidential process. Uh, and there's a really good reason for that. The purpose of that is for to encourage folk to be candid about the strengths and weaknesses of their position, to actually get some, um, you know, reasonable conversations about risk and, and, you know, because nobody's got a perfect case, and also to be candid about what they can and can't do to settle. So that, that um, settlement offers stay within the mediation um, context and can't be brought up later on in the trial saying, hey, now you, you're denying liability, but, you know, Three months ago at mediation, you said you were prepared to pay us a million bucks. Well, how does that work? So so settlement offers are kept confidential. And for the mediator, confidentiality um, sits right up there with impartiality in terms of absolutely central to what we do. Um, you know, you've got to be a keeper of secrets, um, and that's a vital part of your role. That's a vital part of people having trust in you, uh, is that you're a keeper of the secrets that are shared with you in that context. Yeah. Now, I want to pick up on a sort of moving more from the, the ethical stage to some of the challenges in mediation. And, and you mentioned before about uh, ability to settle. Uh, the the whole issue of authority, mm-hmm. um, that can create a bit of a challenge, particularly yep. in commercial mediations, uh, in terms of what participants can and can't actually achieve. Um, has that been your experience as well? Yeah, so um, in terms of authority to settle, I think it's a really interesting issue. Um, the Certainly my um, standard form agreement to mediate um, provides and parties contract through it um, that those attending will have authority to settle. Now, if, you, if a person is attending in their own personal capacity, that's fine. We can usually bind ourselves to, to whatever we want to. It gets a little more challenging when you've got corporate entities attending, be they insurers, be they, um, you know, be they a law firm, which is a defendant to a negligence claim or a construction company, which is um, uh, prosecuting or defending some sort of construction defects claim. And it's got multiple directors exactly. and owners and, and different views. In-house, they have different views exactly. and interests. yeah. So, look, I mean, I guess, um, you know, what can happen is that someone can say, yeah, I've got authority. They don't mention that their authority is capped. Yes. <laughs> and it's not until, you know, nine hours into the mediation that suddenly it comes out that, oh, well, actually, I've got to go and start making telephone calls. Yeah, yeah. And those people who haven't been involved in the process, um, you, you try to bring them up to speed, assuming you can get in touch with them, and and they may have their own interests, which, so have you come across that before? Yeah, and, and it's a, again, it's a really delicate dynamic, and you're absolutely right. Different people have different authority levels um, by virtue of their position within a company, and then those authority levels may or may not be added to specifically for the purpose of the mediation. Um, but even even a managing director of a company may not have authority to you know to bind the company to to any possible um, result. They may need you know at least another um, uh, director to support them in that decision, etc. And there are other um, you know and for instance, bodies corporate are quite challenging in terms of levels of authority. Um, well, it's, it's also the other, the other, the other part. Well, not participants, but actors and within their own organisations. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned the managing director. Right? You know, the managing director can say, "Oh, that's fine." The, you know, chief executive officer will do all these things, but not actually talking to the chief executive officer about whether she yeah. or he actually is willing to do those things. Um, you know, it can be another another issue. And it's also, I think, you know, one of the other things that really interests me about authority to settle is that. 
even if um, someone has authority to sign a settlement agreement, um, it's unlikely they will have absolutely unfettered authority. And by that, I mean it's unlikely that um, you know a, a corporate um, defendant representative will come to a mediation with authority to sign a deal that says they will pay 100% of the claim plus costs, plus general damages, et cetera. And conversely, it's unlikely that a representative of a plaintiff will come to a mediation with authority to settle the claim on the basis that they pay the other side's costs. You know, those sort of absolute extremes um, they won't have authority to do that because that's unlikely to be how they see the case, you know, and, and sort of where, but, and those are the extreme ends, but where the sort of the grey bits of that blur can be a little bit difficult. Um, and look, at, it's not ideal, but it um, it's preferable in the evening that, you know, if there's an opportunity to make a phone call to get more authority that the phone call's made, then the mediation is derailed. And often um, those... Um, those phone calls more often than not um, are um, productive. Yep, okay. Now, just what, what are the issues? Again, it can be, you know, it's a, I don't know whether you call it an ethical issue or a challenge issue or a combination of both of them, is, is when uh, there's this assessment evaluation process going on of parties' respective positions or, or claims, defences, um, no professor, James Stark, out of the University of Connecticut's law school, back in 97, he wrote an article on, on the risk of poor evaluation assessments given by mediators. And not all mediators will provide a, uh, an evaluation assessment. What I find is a lot of retired judges will jump in, you know, even before you ask, they'll, they'll, they'll give you one. Um, <laughs> but of course, you know, as counsel, you're always battling, you know, with the whole problem where the other side want to give you their assessment, and then we all look to the mediator and say, well, what do you think about it? Um, what's your approach with uh, evaluations and assessments? Um, I think, again, really interesting issue. And um, if I can take it back to sort of um, give that a bit more context, in um, New Zealand, Australia, the UK, the, the typical sort of expectation philosophy um, around um, mediation, at least in the civil and commercial context, and 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 what you will re- most often see people write is that mediators ought not to um, uh, pursue an evaluative style. Um, whereas in the US, quite the contrary, much more commonly mediators are evaluative and are expected to be. And what what's meant by evaluative in that context can be um, can be somewhat hard to define. But at its most sort of extreme, um, uh, evaluative mediating is perceived to be um, mediating where the mediator says, "I think X has a strong case and Y has a weak case on this issue. I think X will win in court and Y will lose." Um, and it's, it's I, almost a form of mid-arb, isn't yeah, it? You know, it's, yeah, yeah, a sort of um, an opinion um, given by the mediator as to the merits of the claim. Um, now, and and it's interesting, you know, a lot of lay people actually uh, expect that of a mediator because they think, hey, you know, I'm getting this lawyer with you know 28 years experience, an experienced lawyer, and we're paying them good money. And they're independent. And they're and, independent, you know, exactly. So, so yeah. they're not going to hopefully be suffering from confirmation bias. And, totally. You know, they're going to listen telling, to... Telling me what I want to hear. <laughs> they're going to you know. listen to this dispute. So, of course, I want to hear what they yeah. think about it. Um, and so, you know, a lot of lay people expect that. But in New Zealand and, as I say, Australia and the UK, traditionally the view has been, hey, shouldn't do that. And there are some really good reasons why um, it's perceived that folks shouldn't have an, an evaluative approach. Um as good a lawyer as you might be, um, you know, you, you, you've you only just come up to this dispute. You don't know all the details of it. You know, you don't know everything about it. So um, that's that's one sort of reason why you shouldn't be evaluative. Um, another is that um, as soon as you are evaluative, there's a perception that you're taking a side, you know, the, and, and the folk that um, who the evaluation favours are going to go, great, fantastic, Kelly knows what he's talking about. But the, the folk who are on the other side of it are going to go, well, he, Kelly's just got it wrong and now now he's with the other guys and how can he possibly help me going forward? Um, and, and so you lose that sort of impartiality, that trust that the parties might have in you. Um, 
And so there's a view that, you know, those who favour a, a solely facilitative um, approach say, look, th- those things are too risky, too problematic. You are much better off to be um, an effective chair, a person who guides the process in a, in a fair and impartial way. Now, I, my personal view is that it's a little more subtle than that. And, and that's, not, that's not an original view. There are others who have written on this. And Bob Fisher, QC, has written some fantastic articles back in 2012 to, to this exact point. Um, because what we are trained to do as mediators is reality test. You know, we're trying to check in with people sort of how realistic their perceptions of the case are. And I reckon that anyone doing reality testing, the questions that you ask in that context are bound to be sourced in a level of evaluation. You know, when you're trying to check in with people, hey, what do you, where you really at on this limitation defence? It's probably because you can see there's a bit of risk, at least from what you're hearing, attached to that aspect of their case. So I think it's a little greater than that. I don't think it's binary. I don't think it's evaluative or facilitative. I think that a, a heavily evaluative, you're wrong, you're, you're right um, approach is is very unlikely to be effective. Um, but I think there is scope to be a little more nuanced. And to track back to your question in terms of my personal approach, um, I, I'm never evaluative um, in the sense of um, uh, when we're all together saying anything that could be remotely perceived as um, favouring or, or even um, uh, shining an extra light on a particular argument. Um, but when I'm in private session with people, I might say something like this. Um, the other side seem to think their limitation argument is really strong. And I think that that's, um, that's really factoring in their risk assessment and that their approach to settlement. What are you guys saying about that? You know, is there more that you can say that you haven't said there that, that might sort of um, change the dynamic there? So that's me. In a, there's an evaluative background to that because obviously I'm sensitive yep. to the fact that limitation defence is an issue, but I'm not painting anyone into a corner or embarrassing anybody or anything like that. And sometimes when I say things like that, people will say to me, no, no, Mark, we've got, a, we've got case Y and fact X that actually really get us across the line on limitation. We know we're strong. But so other times they'll say to me, no, we know, we know privately that that's a weak part of our case. So, so in that sense, you know, we, we've sort of drawn out a little bit more of their risk analysis and we've, um, we've reality tested their position a bit more. Yeah. Sorry, long answer to a short question. No, 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 but very good. And, and look, I agree with you 100% with that. I mean, the, the, the whole uh, mediator as an agent of reality is, is, is a real value-add part of the process. Uh, because often for parties, they've had, you know, their lawyer in the air saying, we, this is the only way to see the world. And, and then, of course, the lawyer on the other side, who they're sceptical about, is saying, well, no, this is the only way to see the world. And it's, it's, it's good to have a, a mediator who can act as a bit of an agent of reality, maybe call a bit of BS if there's a bit going on there, um, but really get the parties focused on at least understanding that um, you know these are the issues that they're going to have to confront if they don't reach a resolution. And uh, those issues aren't necessarily uh, clear-cut uh, and, and guaranteed that they'll go one way or another. Um, let's talk about some of the, the the challenges, you know, just in terms of, um, uh, again, for, for, for mediators, out there, um, uh, one of them's you know getting and keeping clients, but that's a you know how does how does that work? I mean, are you are you advertising the, your, your services? What what do mediators do? Do they sort of stand outside court looking for <laughs> very unhappy people and say you need your a mediator? Case has been adjourned again. Aha. <laughs> Let Opportunity. Me help. Yeah, yeah. Adjourned um, for a year and a half. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, I, I guess. Um, to be slightly pedantic, I'm not sure that mediators have clients in the sense, you know, in the, in the sense that we usually do as lawyers, you know, clients to whom we owe um, uh, discrete uh, duties of loyalty and and the like. But we certainly have a market, and you yeah. know, we're in business, so t- totally to that to that extent, you, you're absolutely bang on. Um, and I think um, you know, different mediators have different markets and for, for some, you know, that, that works in a totally different way. You talk about the MB folk doing employment work, you know, that they've just that's that's a government dynamic. Most people have got to go through there and so they've got more work than they can possibly cope with, bless them, and and, and it's wonderful that they do it. Um for me, operate you know, I operate um 
largely in the private market. I do some sort of government panel work, so we're the Tight Homes Tribunal, the um, Sports and Recreation Community Mediation Service. I, I do some work with those guys. They're amazing as well. Um, and in terms of, um, you know, my market in that regard, and I guess for other mediators as well, um, building that market up and, and building up your connections and building up those people who are kind enough to refer work to you is a sort of, at least for me, I, I've found that to be a sort of, um, what's the right way of putting it, a sort of across the board process. So I do lots of stuff, you know, as I know you do, you know, I, I do articles, I do seminars, I um, uh, I love chatting to people about mediation, so I'm always happy to do so. I'm obviously involved with Ammon, so I sort of um, you know, am involved in the sector as well. Um, and, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And the neat thing for me personally is that I really love it. And I think mediation is a great thing for people generally. So I'm very happy to talk about it. And I sort of talk about it in a variety of contexts and hopefully some people like what I say. That's why I'm loving having you on this podcast. I mean, it's just a great way to help with educating, you know, the wider business community about commercial mediation. Because I mean, once upon a time, you'll recall, uh, it was kind of part of the civil dispute resolution process through the courts was that the courts would offer judicial settlement conferences, you know, which is a form of mediation. Mm -hmm. you know, it's with a judge. But that all fell by the wayside. Um, I mean, you know, I can think of instances where it wasn't particularly helpful. I mean, this retired judge will remain nameless, but um, did have a judicial settlement conference where uh, my client had a, a very strong case and we were very confident of settling until the, um, the, the now retired judge came into the into the judicial settlement conference room and said, oh, I've just been looking over the, the pleadings here, and I think, because uh, we I was acting for the plaintiff and sort of directed to the parties, I think there's a defence that's missing here. <laughs> <laughs> and then came in and gave, gave the defendant a defence they hadn't thought of. <laughs> and they were, I mean, it didn't quite go like this, but it was almost like, this mediation's over, you know, like we've, 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 the whole dynamics changed, you know, where our risk assessment has gone from, we'll pay anything to get out of this to, um, we'll see you in court. And, and, and unfortunately we ended up in court and, and the court of appeal, but you know, maybe that's just a mediation nightmare that, you know, the type scenario just wasn't particularly helpful. <laughs> Sort of where evaluative goes to the, yeah, the other extreme, right. you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, but that process is gone and, uh, of course, you know, there, there will be parties out there that just think, well, you know, I've got a dispute. The only way to have it resolved is through the court system mm. or I just have to, you know, knock it down to a bad experience. Um, so there's, pro there's probably more scope, wouldn't you think, to educate the wider yeah. community, business community, that, you know, what mediation is and what it can offer. Yeah, totally. And look, the um, mediation um, is um, is a lot more common than I think many lay people would appreciate. So again, referring to Grant Morris, Associate Professor at Victoria, his um, fantastic research, um, and Grant and Annabelle Shaw have written a great book too, Mediation in New Zealand. Um, but Grant's done some sort of... Um, a series of surveys of the mediation market in New Zealand. And he reckons that there are about 800 to 1,000 commercial slash civil mediations uh, in New Zealand a year. And as I understand it, about 120 um, civil cases are resolved by trial per year in New Zealand. So you're getting, what are we talking there, um, six, sort of seven times as many cases um, are resolved through mediation as are resolved through trial in the courts. And I don't reckon a lot of lay people would appreciate that. People like you who, you know, are savvy with your use of mediation, know how, to, how and when to use it, will, will well know that you probably resolve plenty more of your cases by mediation than trial. But I'm not sure that's well known out in the commercial world, much less the more general world. Um, well, look, you're right. I mean, it's it's... Uh, the lack of uh, knowledge actually surprises and concerns me at times when, you know, I sit down and, and I'll say to um, a commercial organisation, well, okay, um, we're not getting this resolved through this way. How about we try a different approach? Why don't we think about mediation? And then it's almost like a, not, not really a, a look of shock, but almost a, a look of confusion of going, well, what is that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you have to kind of walk them through it. I mean, I think most business people have a sense of what mediation is, but of course it's far more nuanced than um, 
than, than what most people would imagine. Yeah, yeah. I think that's right. And, um, and, and to me, in terms of um, selling the process, if that's the right way of putting it, I, I think, um, you know, obviously I'm a convert, but I think there are some really um, compelling reasons for people to look to mediate their, their disputes. Um, it's an, an incredibly effective process. If settlement is your metric then yep. mediation is a great way to go. And, um, you know, there is lots of international research which would suggest that commercial mediation generally 80% plus case of cases settle. And individual mediators will have their own sort of, um, you know, sort of metrics and numbers and the, and the like. But as a general proposition, uh, the surveys will tell you that 80% plus of commercial mediations will achieve a result. But really interestingly, um, I think there are a couple of other, and I'm quite into the stats in this context, there are a couple of other um, real positives to bear in mind. There was a great um, Scottish mediation pilot, ran 06 to 08, where 90% of the parties that settled at mediation recorded, re, sorry, reported that the terms of their agreement had been carried out, while only 67% of litigants who otherwise settled during the course of litigation reported compliance with their agreement. So what that's telling you is you're actually getting better deals out of mediation, deals that people stick to. And yep. I think that's sort of what you were talking about before, that cathartic dynamic, the chance for people to have their say, to actually sort of put it all in a package that has it all done in that way. Um gets you better buy-in on your right. deals. Well, you're right. I mean, if you think about it this way, I mean, often direct settlements will be done by a couple of lawyers exchanging some letters um, or, or emails, deal done, and, and then they go and f close the file and hope that um, the deal's complied with. Whereas when you've got two people sitting across a room from each other and they've been through a process that neither of them have found particularly easy or enjoyed... But the end of it is, is that they've um, signed a document together by eyeballing each other, saying, "I will do this," shaking hands. That that tends to instill more of a commitment, exactly. yeah. to actually follow through with the, the deal. Because I mean, at the end of the day, a settlement's worthless if no one's going to comply with it. Totally. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, what I talked about the parties um, getting the opportunity to talk to each other for perhaps the only time in the process. Um, I, I think. Um, they, the parties also ultimately control mediation, and I certainly say this to people. Well, they have to. It's, a, it's, a, it's essential. It's, it yeah, is, it's yeah, a consent. Yeah, it's a consent. Yeah, yeah, they've agreed to come together, as well. yeah. and it's mm -hmm. um, they'll only do a deal if they both agree to it. So, so in that sense, the parties have a control that they never have in, in the litigation dynamic, because ultimately, as, as I think you said before, a third party is going to impose a solution on them. So, so mediation. Um, really high settlement rates, the deals, um, the stats would suggest, are stuck to more readily. The other thing is that um, even if uh, the mediation doesn't result in a settlement, in my view, um, typically they're still a positive. And um, they are a positive in the sense that I think, and lawyers certainly report this to me, they're useful in terms of refining the issues, finding out what's really important and where the real strengths and weaknesses of respective positions are, and that can help make um, any subsequent trial more efficient. Um, and there's stat, there are stats around that as well. There's a nice EU um, study, 2001, um, that found that even those cases that didn't settle at mediation were shorter and less costly to the courts and the disputants. So you get that refining of issues, and that's helpful. And that, that's even for a mediation that hasn't achieved a settlement. Yeah, and, and also there's that uh, in, intermediate in between the end of the mediation, no settlement reached, um, pre-judge handing down a judgment, the party's actually reaching a settlement. Yeah which uh, I think you can often say probably wouldn't have been achieved but for the fact the parties went through mediation. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And uh, so, uh, look, I, I mean, I ne never get super disappointed or despondent or disheartened by mediation not settling. It, it just means that one or more of the parties just weren't at that stage. They, yeah. they weren't ready to settle. But the process has brought them a long way down that track and it's um, truncated what otherwise would be a much more lengthy, um, distressing, expensive yep. process. Um, hey, look, 
Mark, what's the what's the future for you goals wise with mediations? While just continuing to crank them out, or what, you know, what are, what are, what's, what are your plans moving forward? I mean, we're almost through mid twenty twenty two. Just <laughs> I um so this in a sense is you know gosh this is terribly personal. This is my sort of second career if you like, and I mm. love the way that in the world these days we all have you know hopefully more than one career. Um, and as I say, I'm uh, in mediated terms. I'm a, I'm a youngster at fifty two. Um, so look, and as I say, I love it. So, you know, I'm delighted to do it and I, I want to keep doing it and, um, do as much as I can. Um, and that'll probably, um, take me, I think if I'm being really sort of big picture, big plan through until uh, when I'm about 70. And then my third career is going to be as a sort of stumpy, sort of hunchbacked mountain guide. That's what I really want to be when I'm <laughs> old. I want to be this right. old guy with a backpack yeah. on his back that's pointing out sort of dandelions and alpine heights to um, hopefully um, a gog um, guests. That's my plan. Oh, good. You'll be able to help mediate for them which path to take, the high <laughs> road or the low road. Hey, Mark Kelly, commercial mediator, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today and um, all the best. We're looking forward to hopefully working with you again in the future. Super pleasure. Thanks for having me, Chris. I've really appreciated it. It's been lovely. Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode of the Law Down Under podcast. You're welcome to join in on the discussion via my podcast page, which you can access at patterson.co.nz. That's p-a-t-t-e-r-s-o-n dot c-o dot n-z. Thanks for supporting the podcast and tune in again for more on the law, its application and the future of the law here down under. (laughs) 